you're listening to Everything's Totally Fine. I'm Allie Hawk, and I'll be your host. Every other Tuesday, we bring you people who share stories about their lives. These aren't just any people, they're the toughest we can find. So join us every other Tuesday to hear about the times we pretend everything's totally fine. This episode, we're doing something different. You'll hear three stories from three of our favorite storytellers from this first season. The first story is actually from the pilot episode. Catherine Lee was trying to be an overachiever. She'd recently joined the board of a co-op, which was run by a guy she describes like this. Kind of crazy, burly, older guy who like I don't think liked the idea that like I was like trying to like join his board and give him ideas. Okay. But he was like fairly nice to me. Um when I say older, I mean he was like probably like like 40. He's like a bigger, jolly guy. He like smokes a lot of pot. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of resentful that he hasn't made it in life. Okay. And so like I knew he had like a little bit of like beef with me. And like so fast forward months later, I'm like at the co-op one day and he's working and I'm like just like talking and like lamenting they're like oh I'm looking for a job right now I'm like I need some extra money and he's like oh I actually have a garden um I really need it to get like weeded because I'm gonna start doing dinner parties in my backyard Mm -hmm. um do you want to come over and weed and I was like like 20 bucks an hour and I was like sure I have a you know graduate degree I'm like pretty educated I am like not the like dumbest person ever I'm a good worker um but yes, at 30 years old, I'm going to go to this stranger's backyard and weed his garden for $20 an hour. So I show up at his house. Um, he doesn't live like all that far from me. So I walk over there and I'm, um, you know, like walk into his disgusting looking house. Like he just like had never cleaned it. It's like, you know, the backyard was in shambles. It was like, just like, it was like, it used to be a garden that was like overrun with weeds. Like you could like, you couldn't mm-hmm. even get it. It's like vines. It was mm-hmm. so tragic. But the first thing he does is offer me a coffee. So, of course, I say yes. And he, um, like, luckily at that time, I wasn't taking cream in my coffee. So I have a black coffee that I get in this, like, um, coffee mug. And so I go to take my first sip and realize on the side of the glass, inside the glass, is, like, nothing that can be anything else but a loogie. What? He is either loogied in my coffee or didn't clean his glass from a previous loogie and like didn't look hard enough and but poured it, coffee into it. It would have had to float in those stick. That seems fresh to me. Okay. I could only see it when I tipped the glass no. to take a sip. No. Um, and so I'm like just disgusted. Like if I even see like even like our mugs at work that are like those ceramic mugs. Like when mm-hmm. I see that ceramic mug, like I'm like a little bit, oh, wow. a little bit sick. Yeah. So this experience like really yeah. resonated. But I didn't leave. I what? I continued to weed like really, like a really good job. Like that was like a really like, um, like I like weeded the shit out of that garden. I like just like kill, like weeded everything. What are you thinking? Like, are you doing it out of rage? I'm thinking this is a crazy fucking experience. But like, I'm just I'm here, so I have to like finish what I'm doing to get up and leave the situation is like more difficult. So what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna keep weeding and I'm gonna do the best job I can weed. Like it was like, not like I'm trying to do a good job, but it was like, I just need to do something. Mm -hmm. So for the next two hours I weed until he's like, do you want a snack? And of course I say yes. What? What does he, what does he serve me? And watch. A shit sandwich is what I have to guess. Banana shake. But it's just a loogie hiding device. 
one. Yeah, that is. It's the color of mucus. It's no way. Banana shake. Well, so what do you do? He's watching me. I had to sip <laughs> a smoothie. No. And I was like, I just suffered through that and left and called my friend being like, why does this shit happen to me? When she gave the answer, like, because you just say yes to everything. You yeah. put yourself in, I was like, oh, you're totally right. She wasn't even trying to be like enlightening. She was like, you know this, right? <laughs> this season we had lighthearted, goofy stories. And we also had some heavier ones that dealt with issues like addiction. In episode number 17, Devin Murphy compared alcoholism, well, to a shit monkey. But imagine you had like a little shit monkey who like hugged onto your leg and you're like, can he come too? And your buddy's like, no, you're being an asshole trying to bring him. It's like, I know, but like, he really loves me. Like we get along great. <laughs> but that's the thing. It's like, you're always trying your best and the shit monkey wants to come along. He went on to explain the unexpected damages of alcoholism. And I think that his insight applies to any form of substance abuse. Like people who were close with me at the time had to put up with a lot of parts of me that I didn't have to put up with. This show deals a lot with struggle. And to my guest's credit, they're really honest about it. In the fourth episode, we heard from Abhilash Mishra, who, when he started his story, was not doing very well in school. And at that time, his mom was not having it. So she, um, in all her wisdom, decides that <laughs> she needs to send me to a program for gifted kids in math. Oh, I hate that word, gifted. <laughs> so she really sort of, uh, you know, put in a lot of effort to make sure that I, I got into this program. I don't know how, uh, how how she did that, but I did. And, and uh, you were growing up, you grew up in India. I grew up in India, yeah. I grew up in this small town in India. I, I was never at the top of the class or anything. I was somewhere in the middle, maybe. And that was a big problem for my mom because, you know, you, you as, as an Indian kid, you, you expected to perform well academically. And... Uh, uh, so that that definitely sort of uh, created a major created a major crisis for the family at some point. <laughs> and did you feel stressed out about that? Um, at some point, yes, I felt I felt a little stressed out about the fact that you know you you see your peers around you who are doing pretty well, and then um, okay, you know, so you don't you're not interested in math, and then your mom wants you to go to this this program for, the, for, for gifted kids. So I was like, okay, maybe I should like do something uh, which is good. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> So you're like, I'm going to pick something and I'm going to be good at it. Yes. And that, that was exactly it. I mean, that, that I basically was like, I need to pick something and be good at it. And sports was not going to work out. And I was like, okay, you know, math seems hard. Let's try it. And I, I really worked hard for this one summer after eighth grade. Okay. And I'm, I'm very grateful. So in, in retrospect, I'm very grateful that my mom sent me to this program because uh you know it was it was a place which was deeply discomforting i, I think you know discomfort maybe is a good thing at times you know, it just pushes you in a way which is which is good you know. so you started to enjoy math after that i did yeah and then you went on to oxford well you, so, went, through, you went through high school i went through high school i went to college in india three-year college and after that i moved to oxford when i started getting interested in math i i also started getting very interested in physics. And part of the reason was that, you know, physics was this bridge where you take abstract mathematical ideas and you apply to the world around you. You're using equations to describe reality and somehow reality seems to work. And 
at that point it just seemed magical. So you were like on a track now and you were excited about what you were doing. I was, yeah. And I I was doing reasonably well in in college in India. And so um, I got a fellowship uh, to go to Oxford. And I was like, okay, this is great. Um, I'm going to go do, do well. I was, I guess I was a little cocky back then. <laughs> for you found a little it, you're good at your thing you found it I'm you're like good yeah, at I'm, it. I'm good at this and I remember going to the first meeting with my college advisor you know I was this sort of awkward 20 uh, something Indian kid who walks in and this professor is like oh there's some sherry in here I was like why, why would you have sherry <laughs> at an academic meeting and did you uh, take some no I had orange juice <laughs> and, and this is a very sort of uh, stereotypical English professor, right? You know, in a tweed jacket, sipping sherry, in in this old office, uh, and he's like, "Oh, it 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 looks like you're doing fine, but it seems like your grade is at the bottom of the class." And I was like, "Okay, that did not like register very well with me." And and you had no idea. Yeah, it 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 was just it was a big shock for me and. This was a time when I was just like, I, I think, yeah, it, it, I, I was just way, way too confident of my abilities at, at uh, coming in. And that sort of helped me calibrate. I was like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm not really good at this. And that was in physics? That was in physics, yeah. And, uh, and I think that sort of started this, this year of my life when I was like, maybe uh, I you know, maybe I just gotten here by flu. You must have been, your classmates must have been your friends and you're studying with them and hanging out with them. And so did you start to compare yourself to them? Because if you're at the bottom of the class, then you might naturally think, oh, they're all doing better. Yeah, so I, I started talking to them. I, I think I, I also started to withdraw my withdraw into myself a little bit where um, I would not reach out for help and, you know, I would not go and and socialize very much because I, I was just feeling very shitty about myself for, for this one year. I was I was on the verge of sort of basically thinking, well, you know, maybe I should just get a degree which is not that good and go somewhere and, you know, do something else. And yeah. I was doing better by by the time by the by the end of the first year. Um, but I still wasn't in a point where I was definitely not in the top 20% of the class. Uh, I was very average, um, or slightly above average, I would say, yeah. And did your mom know? Yes, she did. Was <laughs> she trying to send you to an Excel gifted physics <laughs> <laughs> No, so she, at that point, I think she, uh, she changed tracks into being the supportive mom who's like always trying to remind me that I was lucky enough to be at the place. So you you finished up then the second year. My second year, yeah. At Oxford, and then yeah. you moved to Pasadena. Uh, I went back to India for a for a bit, uh, for for a year actually. I deferred uh, for a year, went back to India, um, and then came back uh, to Pasadena. Yeah. And then math rears its ugly head again while you're at Caltech. Uh, yes. Yeah. So I was never I'm I've, I was never good at sort of addition. Like you know the the kind of math you do to to fix a bill. It's it's not something that I was very good at. Like the mental math sort of. Yes, okay. I'm I'm terrible at, at that. And so I remember 
so we have a qualifying exam before you can begin your research uh, at the end of the first year of the program. And so at this point, you have a graduate degree from Oxford. Yes. In? Physics. Okay. And I have finished one year of coursework at Caltech. Okay. And I am in this exam where a panel of professors are supposed to basically sit down and test me as to whether I know the basic things required for me to go and start doing independent research. And amongst them was my own advisor, um, who's who's extremely sweet and and very supportive. And I I think there was there was a professor who was a MacArthur genius, and there were three other professors who were extremely smart. And what does the room look like? I'm just picturing like you in the middle of a room and them like sitting. They're sitting around and. Uh, you're on the a t- only student. I'm the only student sitting standing at a blackboard, basically being asked questions, and I'm. I'm, I'm sort of working out the questions on the board. You have to, like, perform in front of a, a genius. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I was, I was working something out, and I was basically supposed to subtract 9 from 16. 16 minus 9. Mm-hmm. And I start counting with my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and I look up, and, and the professors are just looking at me aghast. And did you, and like, I, smile and laugh and wave? Um... I don't. I was just too nervous. I think I was just way too nervous, and this this kind of became part of uh, part of the graduate student community folklore. They, they they always talk about how I looked one when I stepped out of the the room, and apparently I just like I my expression my expression was like oh my god oh my god oh my god I'm gonna fail oh my god. I, I sort of like being in a place where I'm not completely comfortable. I, I think that that just is more fun at times. And so now, how do you feel? You, you're about to finish up at Caltech mm-hmm. and potentially start a new exciting program. Do you, does any part of you still feel like an imposter? Um, yes. Uh, I, think, I think part of it is... I, I think I'm more aware of it in some sense where you know I for for the longest part I think imposter syndrome uh, as a very real thing was just not a part of the conversation in academia like people you realize that you know everyone feels that way and like no one talked about it and the interesting thing in the past five years or so is that you just had a lot of people who started speaking out and they were like oh I've been feeling this way too and so almost if all my friends uh, who I consider are incredibly smart uh, feel, you know, when I talk to them, I'm like, you know, they say that they, they, they feel the same. And, um, and I think just recognizing that, you know, that is a part of an experience just makes it easier and, and you're sort of able to look at it in a more clinical way and able to, able to deal with it instead of just feeling like, Oh, I'm the only person who feels that way because I'm an idiot and everyone else is smart. And so, yeah, it's the double imposter syndrome where you're like, I'm the only one suffering from imposter syndrome. syndrome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's that can be the truth, though. It's like you and your friends, so a group of people, and every single person in that group could be feeling, I'm a fraud. Yes. I shouldn't be here. Yeah. I'm the one person that doesn't belong. And, yeah. the whole, and every, yeah. every single person could be thinking that. I think that. that's that, yeah. And I, I think it's it's really surprising the number of people who go through that. And 
um, I remember a friend of mine told me that this MacArthur Genius uh, award winner who was in my uh, my panel, so she confided to him that uh, she was, you know, she had imposter syndrome and he laughed and he said, oh, that's how I felt my entire career at Caltech. And we were like, okay, like, you know, this is, this is one of the smartest people uh, on the faculty. And it's, it's sort of interesting to see that you had him feeling the same way too. And, and probably, you know, feeling, feeling like an imposter can be a healthy thing at times, as long as it's not crippling. A little bit of discomfort, the fact that you don't belong, might be just a healthy sign that you are questioning yourself and that you sort of pushing yourself to be more than what is expected from you. Our last story today comes from a friend of mine, Michael Jordan. He's probably going to be upset that one of his stories made it into this highlight episode, but his was one of the fan favorites for anyone who filled out the season one survey. He's one of those people that suffers from the problem of being way too nice to people and way too hard on himself. So my friend Mike, um, from we met in college and we were actually friends, which was cool. This is my first time having friends and stuff. And um, we worked well together. I thought he was a very creative person. He was very funny and he would have ideas for for like websites and stuff and like he had a, a comic that he was doing during his college days about college life and stuff and i was like well you should make a website to publish your comic because he wasn't like putting it anywhere and so then that was fun for me because i could make a website for him and he wasn't like very you know technical in terms of like updating websites that kind of stuff um so it was like a cool challenge for me and it was always this way with his projects i would find ways to do the hard things and make them easy for him mm-hmm. and then um the stuff that he was using my inventions for were really cool things and so it was like a good uh it was like natural, a symbiotic relationship symbiotic relationship we had been doing this stuff for years and then we both ended up moving out here to LA and he started doing these really cool posters where he would write the lyrics, all these lyrics from like uh, all these ar- from an artist's song. So he would take like uh, Radiohead lyrics, all the lyrics from all their songs, and he would write them out in a way varying the the width of the stroke in his writing, um, so that if you viewed it from far away, it looked like a portrait of Tom York, for example. Okay, and it was very cool. cool. Um, so he wanted to set up a website where you could buy his artwork. And so that was kind of an added challenge for me, like integrating with payment gateways and all this stuff, like to accept credit cards and all that. So it was a really cool thing. It was, it was a bigger project. It was a more serious project. So I was working on this website and it was coming up to the deadline. It was like a week out and I was almost done. And I remember he emailed me early he was like hey we still have a week left it's fine I just wanted to check in with you see how it's going so me I I wanted to kind of go above and beyond I was like okay I'm not gonna write him back right away I'm just gonna finish the last two things that I have to do and then when I email him back like tomorrow I can just be like oh that website it's done already a week early you know Mm -hmm. so I was just I was all excited to do that but as I got into it in order to fix the one thing that I had to do, I had to fix these two other things. And so I'm like, oh, okay, 
uh, it's just going to take me another day. And then I can just write him back and be like, uh, it's done. It's done early. You can launch early or whatever. And a couple days later, he emailed me again like, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. Just wanted to check in, see how the website's doing. Let me know. You know, he's just nice about it. Um, and so then at that point, I start getting nervous because I'm like, well, okay, how do I tell him why I didn't just write him back right away? Uh, you know, and, and I just have these three things to finish now. And then I could just email him and be like, it's done. It's, it's, it's cool. And I was getting really nervous and things were taking longer and longer and the deadline was coming up now. It was like a few days away. And then I got, <laughs> I got hired for a job for a week and I could spend like no time on it. And so all of a sudden the deadline came up like the day and he emailed me. He's like, Hey, is the website ready? Just checking in. And it wasn't, it wasn't ready yet. And now I'm thinking I've ignored two of his emails and now there's a third one that I have to write back. And now I have to explain why did I not respond to his other two? And uh, now it's the deadline. I have to tell him why it's late now and that I don't really know when I'm going to be able to finish it and all this stuff. And I start freaking out and I don't write him back. <laughs> and then like a week goes by. So now it's a week past <laughs> it's, the deadline. And there's this huge pile on. Yes. There's all this stuff I have to do still that I just didn't do because I'm like busy doing a job now and all this stuff. And uh, he emailed me again a week later, like, hey, I hope you're not mad at me. I didn't mean to do anything. Just let me know how the website's coming. Um, deadline was last week, but it's not a big deal. Like he's, he's still, still cool. very nice. So he's still, a nice guy. There's a great opportunity for you to <laughs> yeah. just send an email. Yes. All I have to do is be like, oh man, I'm so sorry. I'm a terrible person. That doesn't redeem me, but that's all I really have to say. And then I can be like, uh, I just need two more days or whatever. And then just actually do it and finish it. But now I'm just like panicking. He emails me again a few days later and I can't even open it at this point. Right. I started a folder in my Gmail called shame. And I just put, <laughs> whenever he emailed me, I just put it over there. I didn't open it. It's, it's still there. I still have unopened emails from him. And long story short, I never... <laughs> wrote him back again. I never finished his website. You still haven't spoken to him? I have not spoken to him for three years now. And it, we used to talk like all the time. And I just stopped because I panicked and I dug a hole too deep for myself because <laughs> I'm just because I'm like such a weird person or whatever. I don't know what it is. I can't deal with people. And so now I, I guess our friendship's over. I don't know. Call him right now. Do you have his phone number? No, I'm not. I can't do that. No, no, no. So you'll just never talk to him again. I I can't. I did this to myself. But, but why I'm, can't you? Well, because now what do I say? Exactly what you just said to me. I mean, I can relate to the idea of feeling that you've gone too far. Uh huh. But there's an opportunity for redemption. I mean, there must be projects that he started in the last three years. I'm sure. Okay, so I have a couple questions. Okay. How often did you think about it when you started that job for the week? Mm -hmm. How often did you think about him and the project? Um, every day. It was stressing. It was, you know, really weighing on me at that point. Like multiple times during the day would it flash yeah. into your head? And oh, yeah. What did that like look like and feel like? Uh, it was just, it was a, a doom. It felt like doom upon me. Like there's no good way out of this. He's waiting for his website it's costing him money because he's not making sales yet and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, what am I going to do about this? I don't think there's anything I can do. 
blah, 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 you know, just thinking about it that way. And then when did you feel like you reached the point of no return? When you created the shame folder, that was... Yeah, pretty much. I was like, well, (laughs) (laughs) at that point, there's nothing I can do. And yeah. Yeah, I'd say it was after the deadline, I decided that I, that I, I can't deal with this anymore and I have to ignore it. <laughs> For the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> and that's our season. The show will be back in eight weeks. Until then, please rate us and give us a review in iTunes. It does go a long way. And if you have anyone to recommend, send us an email, hi at etfshow.org. I'll be doing interviews on the road for the next eight weeks, and we'll be back in October. Thank you so much for listening.